This is a Federal News Network podcast. Starting today, 1,400 employees of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission are returning to the office. Well, at least one day a week. But with union negotiations still incomplete, the American Federation of Government Employees is taking issue with EEOC's announcement. We get more now from Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And what did EEOC announce, Drew, and who does this actually affect? Tom, those 1,400 union workers are the last piece of EEOC's workforce that is getting now getting an answer on their deadline to re-enter office spaces. EEOC announced this on May 5th, which gives employees just under two weeks to prepare. And that comes after other groups at the agency, like senior leaders, supervisors, managers, and about 650 non-bargaining employees return to the office for at least some part of in-person work in phases between March 28th and April 11th. And this is not just Washington, D.C., but EEOC has regional offices, correct? That's correct. They have 53 union offices, to be exact. And employees who are returning to work today will work in person, as you said, at least one day per week for the first month. But that will increase to at least two days per week for the rest of 2022. The days that employees will be expected to work in person varies between offices. And it's based on factors like location and staffing levels. Got it. And so notwithstanding that it's been two and a half years since the pandemic, what negotiations are still going on at this point? The agency and AFGE were working on a reentry agreement, which is called the Memorandum of Understanding, or MOU for short for EEOC's union employees. And that MOU includes things like a neutral and organized selection process, so who's working in person on which days, regularly conducting field office safety inspections, intaking patrons in a contactless manner, and expanding telework and remote work flexibilities for employees. The MOU also outlined a phased re-entry approach for EEOC, which would start with moving to the office for areas that have low community rates of transmission for COVID, and then add in areas with medium transmission and ultimately higher transmission week by week. So these are all the issues that the union considers still open. That's right. Those are all things that are still in negotiations. And AFGE said the agreement was still incomplete when EEOC made this announcement to its 1,400 employees that the doors would reopen. And they're complaining that it didn't include some of the factors contained in the MOU, specifically the phased reentry approach, starting with low community transmission and moving to high. One day a week, then, is not considered phased. That's right. There's just more to the story. And I spoke with Rachel Schoenfield, who's the president of AFGE Council 216. She represents 1,400 EEOC employees, and she said she's completely opposed to the announcement going out before negotiations were completed. She said that it didn't include a mention of the phased approach. Our bargaining unit is the largest element of the workforce, spread over 53 offices. Our MOU proposal, which we were very close on, was to phase in the 53 offices. We were close to a deal on that, and the agency scrapped having an MOU prior to reentry, and it doesn't make sense to have reentry negotiations after reentry. 
That's Rachel Schoenfield, president of AFGE Council 216, which represents 1,400 EEOC employees. All right. And so the announcement went out anyway, even with negotiations still open. And what did the EEOC management say was the rationale for doing that and for starting this particular day? The communications director at EEOC, Victor Chen, told me that it's really important that the agency reopen its doors because its services are critical for a lot of vulnerable employees across the country and applicants who really need the agency's help. Chen said that there have been gaps in the agency's ability to deliver its services effectively to the public throughout the pandemic because of the maximized remote work. He said the biggest gap specifically is not being able to reach communities with really vulnerable workers. That includes rural communities, communities of color, immigrant communities, and other places where internet access is often very limited. But Schoenfield at AFGE said that much of EEOC's public-facing work was done by phone even before the COVID-19 pandemic. So there is a bit of discussion still going on between those two arguments. Right. So EEOC is one of those you might call retail agencies, like Social Security for that matter, that deals directly with Americans. And the same issue going on there. The union is afraid of contact with the public coming in, the great unwashed masses that might not be vaccinated or might be having Lord knows what germs besides COVID as much as their contact with one another in the office. And what about management employees and support people that are not in the bargaining unit and the commissioners themselves, which I'm guessing have been going in person? What do we know there? That's right. A lot of other groups for EEOC, excluding the union employees, have already returned to the office. So that includes senior leaders, managers, and about 650 non-bargaining employees. Because the Harris Teeter across the street from their headquarters needs that lunchtime business from the EEOC. So good for them. And what do we know about 2022 later on this year? What's the overall plan here? Are they going to increase, for example, the number of minimum days required in the office? A lot of the answers to those questions are still hanging in the balance. Victor Chen from EEOC said that the agency has so far made no decisions about telework, remote work, or other workplace flexibilities beyond the end of this calendar year. But the agency said they're going to continue union negotiations to consider how reentry impacts its employees. So that includes balancing things like how many days per week employees need to report to the office versus the agency's ability to effectively serve the public. But Rachel Schoenfield from AFGE also took issue with this. She called the deadline of December of this year quote, arbitrary. A lot of other agencies are increasing telework from their pre-pandemic programs, but EOC is offering just a short-term increase. It's sort of like a mirage until arbitrarily ending this December 31st. EOC insist on people coming to the office, even on days they do not have public-facing duties, which is not common sense. Yeah, so we've got a really mixed bag agency to agency here, because as you probably know from my column last week, I spoke with Anita Autry, who is the president of another AFGE local representing CMS employees, and they're kind of going ahead with the idea that everyone is going to telework at least part of the week. But that's a different situation because You don't have people walking in to talk to CMS like you do to EEOC or to Social Security. Do we know about any other agencies at this point? 
The only other agency that AFGE has filed a complaint against is the Office of Personnel Management so far, and we'll see how those negotiations play out relatively soon. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that 
you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, You know, from historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte, but for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month, and you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash bestmusic for details. This episode is brought to you by Verizon. 
With Verizon, you can now get a private 5G network, so you can do more than connect your business. You can make it even smarter. Now ports can know where every piece of cargo is and where it's going. Robots can predict breakdowns and order their own replacement parts. And retailers can get ahead of the fashion trend of the day with a new line tomorrow. With a Verizon private 5G network, you can get more agility and security, giving you more control of your business. We call this enterprise intelligence. From the network America relies on, Verizon. 5G ultra-wideband available in select areas. Pre-qualification required for private 5G network. Terms apply.